with chocolate treats mixed into dark chocolate ice cream, the Tillamook Chocolate Collection is a chocolate game changer because the thing that pairs best with chocolate is more chocolate. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream. Extraordinary Dairy. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle. Because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider. And also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your crave. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hey, everybody. Before we get started with the episode, Amy and I want to give you a disclaimer. We recorded this episode um, about a week ago, and some things have changed since we've actually recorded. Time moves fast in 2019. I know. It really does, especially around this show. Well, first of all, we lost a film uh, producing legend in Robert Evans, who is so closely tied to The Godfather, uh, the first two films. I mean, he's just uh, an amazing guy, and if you've ever... Uh, seeing the kid stays in the picture, he's also uh, a hilarious personality. You know, the movie about his life, The Kid Stays in the Picture, is probably never going to make it on the AFI Top 100, but mm-hmm. sounds like it's a week where it's worth a watch. I think you are exactly right. And last week, we also talked about Francis Ford Copeland, his opinion about Marvel films. Um, since then, uh, he has amended his comments. Uh, in an interview yesterday with Deadline's co-editor-in-chief, Mike Fleming Jr., um, he kind of walk back his comments to something that I actually really agree with. He says, I don't like the idea of franchises, the notion that you can keep on repeating what is essentially the same movie for financial gain. In other words, what is a formulaic approach? I feel like that is taken to reduce the economic risk factor of movies, and I feel like the risk factor is an element that makes movies something to be great. And also, the formulaic film draws the most available resources to them, leaving little for more daring productions and reducing diversity. And I... 100% agree with that. I mean, that's, that is a fair comment. I think that that's to the root of what we were talking about when we were talking about his comments. You know, I think that's what we both feel. Agreed. I mean, I I agree too. So maybe we just take the word despicable and we just reduce it to dis. I like that. And maybe even the lesson to take away from all of this is when you are building out uh, a franchise to really find ways to make these films different. Which is something I do believe that Marvel sometimes does when they approach films in a very different, uh, broad way. It's not always a superhero origin story, but I know for my own sake, it's something I'm so bored of, just seeing how a superhero begins. That's why I really love Spider-Verse, because it kind of subverted that genre in a really interesting way. Well, I don't know. I don't know how we understand Batman if we don't see his parents die and oh, pearls fall on the Never side. need to see that or a kid bitten by a spider ever again. I a mean, kid gets bitten by a spider. <laughs> <laughs> but um, all right. So now uh, we have made our amends. We have tipped our hats. Let's get into our episode. The year is 1940. And let's gas up that jalopy because the Jodes are going on a road trip. The movie, The Grapes of Wrath.
welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. Paul Shear will be here in a second. And this is the podcast where Paul and I are going through every film on the AFI Top 100 list to talk about them in the context of then and the context of today. It has been a lovely ride. It has been a wild ride. We just finished Godfathers 1 and 2. And, uh, we, well, I might have said, you know what, we can get rid of Godfather 2, which is a bit of a tinderbox statement, which is a... I think I should not be saying when California is on fire, but we threw that out there into the universe. Paul flew up the idea of what if we just made them share a slot? Can we please just put Godfather 1 and 2 on the same slot, the biggest seven-hour slot of all time? But here is what y'all responded. Ben L. Connor over on the Facebook page said, I think the reason that I cannot connect with The Godfather 2 is that I don't see it as a tragedy. A tragedy is when a good person falls from grace. But this film especially, it just shows that Michael was never a good person. You know, he says, I don't really see a difference between this film and one that asks, well, has anybody thought about the anguish that human traffickers go through? That is a hot take, Ben. I appreciate that. Connor LaPalm on Twitter, at Connor LaPalm, wrote, You know, my brothers and I cannot see a cake without making sure that everybody else sees the cake before we cut it, and then we proceed to nonchalantly make a single cut. And I do really respect that deep dive. Uh, And I told Connor this on Twitter, and I stand by it. Your family sounds fun. We also learned this week that Paul is incredibly naive, which is something I can say while he's off buying clipper gear and he's not in the room, that he really did not see that the Corleone family set up the senator by murdering the prostitute and blaming him for it. Many, 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 many people took to Twitter to try to convince him that he was naive. But in a way, I find that endearing. That's very endearing. And maybe that explains why he likes this movie a a little bit more than I do. John Chivers wrote, with regard to Hyman Ross Tyree that we see in the film about Mo Green, who we see get killed at the end of the first Godfather, and how there's nothing in Las Vegas, the city he built, to commemorate him, John Chivers wanted to make sure we did all know that, yes, Mo Green is a stand-in for Bugsy Siegel, and yes, there actually is a bust of Bugsy on the grounds of his hotel, the Flamingo. But John is not sure if it was placed there before or after the movie came out, and actually, I'm not sure either. So if anybody knows, let me know. Also on Facebook, John D. writes, You know, I have a counterproposal to Godfather 2 being on the list apropos of Paul's point about sequels, which is that it is rare to have a sequel on the list, or rare, exclusive to this moment, and Amy's point that the films are not distinct enough. John D. suggests Nick's Godfather 2 and add Empire Strikes Back. It is broadly regarded as the best Star Wars film, and it is fairly categorically different in tone and story arc, and it is often, if not more than Godfather 2, cited as the model for a well-executed sequel. I think there are probably a lot of people out there nodding along with you, John. I'm very scared because I hate Empire Strikes Back, uh, so I think I should go hide. I'm sorry about that. Uh, I'll just leave that there. Uh, I'm going to change the subject. Let's talk about Sharon Horwat. As many of you probably know, Sharon Horwat every week is very good and very interesting in naming a film that, if you are interested in this week's film, here's another one you might enjoy, at, on Twitter at TheSharebear19. She had a really interesting take this week. She said, What I said, Unspooled. Interested in a version of Godfather 2 for women? Check out Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again, 2018. It has the same structure as Godfather 2, finding out the matriarch's past while seeing how the child handles things in the present. Sharon, you really blew my mind with that this week. I appreciate that very much. I had not made that connection, and wow. But now, on to this week's movie. You know, there's kind of an interesting parallel because in the Godfather universe of touch, there is a bit about how unions are evil. This is a point that's going to get really picked up in The Irishman. Uh, And now we are about facing to the grapes of wrath. And so last week, we asked you guys to call in with your union stories. And uh, before we listen to some calls, I'm going to say I have been in two unions in my life. 
uh, the MTV News. We founded a union. Uh, they ratified our union, and then they immediately fired all of us so they could break the union, which was a dark day uh, for unions. I'm probably not supposed to say that, but I don't care anymore. And also, when I was at the LA Weekly, we were in a really interesting union. I don't know how exactly they decided that we would be in this union, but the LA Weekly's official union was... The International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers. So for a brief period of time, I was a union member of the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers. I think maybe it's because we had giant printing presses and they were cool. Loved that union. And when the LA Weekly got sold, they fired everybody again to break the union. So uh, let's hear some good union stories. Hey, guys, I've been an audio engineer for going on 10 years now, and it has largely been a success because I've been part of the local IATA union. Hey, New York City Teachers Union, the UFD. Not even the Corleone family could break up. Hi, Hillary James. Ask me local 3315, Cook County Public Defenders. When our office unionized, I got a 50% salary increase. We got a schedule of uh, increases, a procedure for promotion and transfer, and I am now retired with a comfortable pension. I love my union. My grandmother was ahead of her union. My mother was ahead of her union. I worked for the AFL-CIO as a door knocker, talking about labor issues for two years. And I'm now a teacher and a proud member of my teacher's union, as is my husband. So unions abound for me. Oh, I love all those stories. And I should say, despite my own disastrous uh, experiences with labor and unions, they have only proven the point to me that we need unions. So let's, with that idea in mind, talk about the Great Fire. The year is 1940. Time Magazine's Man of the Year is Winston Churchill. The Summer and Winter Olympics are canceled due to the outbreak of World War I. Charlie Chaplin writes, directs, produces, and composes and stars in The Dictator. M&Ms are invented as a way to indulge soldiers with chocolate that melts in your mouth and not in your hand. I didn't know that. Did you know that? Um, and the first green screen effect wins an Oscar for its inventor, Larry Butler, for the film The Thief of Baghdad. Audiences are watching The Philadelphia Story, Fantasia, Pinocchio, and today's film, The Grapes of Wrath. It ranks number 23 on the 2007 AFI Top 100 list falling two points from its 21 ranking in 1998. Amy, who's in it? What's it about? The Grapes of Wrath. It is directed by our buddy John Ford, who um, had Nunnally Johnson write the script. It is majorly produced by Zanuck. Zanuck, who we've been talking about a bit on the show, his fingerprints are all over this movie. As for the plot, I have a feeling you guys know a little bit about it. There's a family named the Jodes. They have a son named Tom Jode. Tom Jode returns home from prison to discover that his family has been pushed off their land by the banks. There in Oklahoma, there's huge dust storms. The family packs up 12 people, giant jalopy, does a massive road trip, talking like deadhead style, from Oklahoma all the way to the promised land of California where they have been told they can pick fruit and get rich. That turns out to be a lie. And then the story is this family that doesn't really even seem to know the word union learning what it is to be in a labor fight and wondering whether or not they can have both things, participate in the labor struggle and keep their family together. And you can't. As for the actors themselves, you have the patriarchs of a couple major acting dynasties. You have Henry Fonda as Tom Jode. You have John Carradine, Robert Carradine's father, as Jim Casey. And then you have an actress named Jane Darwell, old Valvillian type star, who actually winds up winning the Best Supporting Actress uh, Oscar for playing Ma Jode. 
You might also know her, by the way, as being the Bird Woman in Mary Poppins. Oh, wow. I did not realize that. Yeah, I love the Bird Woman. It, uh, the new Mary Poppins, you mean, right? Uh, there is no such thing. I deny, I deny <laughs> the existence oh, of Oh, I meant home. the sequel. The sequel to Mary Poppins. I deny all of this. <laughs> I have one Mary and one Mary only. You know, I think you can't talk about this film without understanding the effect that this book has on our culture. And, you know, I I feel like for me, sometimes Grapes of Wrath and Of Mice and Men kind of get lumped together. I don't know why. I mean, it's just my my literature brain or how I learned this in school. You but think it, all men in overalls look alike. Either they're killing rabbits or they're killing a union buster. It doesn't make a difference to me. Or they're killing a rabbit who is a union buster. Ooh, now that's a movie I want to <laughs> see, like Watership Down, but with unions. Um, <laughs> the Bugs Bunny of, I'll give you two and a half cents. <laughs> <laughs> I just think, though, that you can't deny the effect that this book had on our culture. And and that was something I didn't really know. I mean, this was a giant book, and I actually pulled a little piece of the theatrical trailer of the film, which talks about the book and the energy around this book. Do you have a copy of Grapes of Wrath? Sorry, we're all sold out. Yes, the Grapes of Wrath. Well, send me as many copies as you can. I can't supply the demand. The Grapes of Wrath. 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 As sales skyrocket, the Grapes of Wrath becomes the book of the nation. Everyone, everywhere joins in the discussion of its vital problems. Due to this unprecedented popularity, producers buy for the motion picture rights. So this book, you know, comes out and it's it's just gigantic. I don't think I understood what effect this book had on the culture. I mean, so much so that uh, Zanuck paid roughly $1.8 million in today's money. Uh, back then it was about $100,000 for the right to this novel. And and you have Henry Fonda who like has been avoiding studio contracts going like, all right, I'm going to sign a studio contract to make this movie because I know this is going to be my Oscar movie. It's, like, it's kind of parallel to Gone with the Wind the year before. Yeah, I was thinking about that. And, you know, in a weird way, I feel like Grapes of Wrath isn't really in the discussion as being a classic film as much as Gone with the Wind is. And I think that Grapes of Wrath kind of stays more in the literature world than it does in the film world. Like the conversation we're having a little bit about To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, maybe I wonder if that's in our head just because we had to read these books and nobody ever forced us to read Gone with the Wind. You I know, wonder. like there's Gone with the Wind and The Godfather, yeah. two bestsellers that we think of for their films. Maybe it's more than the book. Yeah. And then the two that we had to read in school, Grapes of Wrath and To Kill a Mockingbird. And we're like, ah, oh, yes, yes, homework. Well, you know, I think the other two, like Gone with the Wind and, and Godfather, are entertaining, you know, works of fiction. And while these, uh, you know, Kill a Mockingbird and Grapes of Wrath are works of fiction as well, it also is, you know, it's a moral tale. It's, it's talk, it, it is, it's not light reading, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting, though, that these are both books, actually, really all four of them, mm -hmm. are books wrestling with who America is and using characters to kind of get at the core of what the problems are in our country. And what I think is extra interesting about Grapes of Wrath is this is a huge best-selling novel about a thing that is happening at that time, yes. still. You know, the Dust Bowl migration, this is a thing that really is at its peak from 1935 to 1939. You know, and that's when a million people come from Arkansas, Oklahoma, from these parts of the Dust Bowl where the land had just dried up, 
where there was no money in farming. And so the banks figured out ways of just sort of seizing control, mechanizing farming, trying to get all the pennies they can out of it since it's dying anyways. And literally a million people were displaced. And they become refugees inside of America, and they all come to California. You know, and it's interesting because, you know, the Dust Bowl migration isn't something that I've thought about. And it isn't even culturally, I think, something that is at the forefront of our mind. So much so that when this film played overseas, they had a little Cliff Notes version of what it was. And I I honestly feel like I could have used that before the film started. Yeah, I mean, well, as a person who literally moved from Oklahoma to California, Mm -hmm. the Dust Bowl migration has always been kind of a running joke to me. Because when I graduated college, I felt like there was sort of a, a dried up cultural atmosphere in Oklahoma where you couldn't, if you wanted to be a person who did anything in the arts, you couldn't do it in Oklahoma. So every creative person in my college, we all moved to California and we kind of joked that it was like the Dust Bowl migration. Uh, That sounds a little callous having just rewatched this movie, but it is true. Um, But yeah, so Steinbeck, when this was all happening, he decided he was going, he's a journalist and a writer. In 1936, he went and he traveled with these migrant camps and he like wrote a gigantic piece about it for the San Francisco News. And then he wrote this book and it's, so it's astonishing to me that this was just happening and it became a bestseller, that people weren't instantly just, oh, it's too bummed out news. We don't want to bother seeing a movie about it. The way we handled Iraq war movies, for example. Well, you know, this is a timepiece of a, a real moment. It's not a uh, it's not a macro view. It's a micro view of what was going on. And, you know, even Zanuck thought at certain points that like Steinbeck was exaggerating, like, oh, this is this is kind of crazy. And he went to see the camps because he could go see them. And he was like, oh, no, you're not exaggerating at all. You're actually downplaying what this looks like. Exactly. And so even though this book is on the bestseller list for over a year, I mm-hmm. mean, that's astonishing. Yeah. Over a year. It, this is also a time when people are still, you know, not everybody's rich yet. You know, the, the war hasn't kicked in. Right. People aren't making money. People are still strapped and they are buying this book. They're using their money to buy this book. It was incredibly controversial. Because the book, even more than the film, much more than the film, gets into really who's to blame. And it gets into this idea of people together need to rise up as one. We need unions. We need strikes. We need to fight. I mean, we've been talking so much in the black, like about the blacklist that was going yeah. to start really kicking into steam a decade after this. This movie is saying things that would have gotten everybody in prison, I feel like, in the 50s. You know, we need to strike. Well, I mean, this is why uh, Steinbeck and Ford were investigated by Congress, uh, you know, during the Red Scare era. Because it was basically like the pro-union stance felt pro-communist. You know, that that's, you know, just because they're putting this out there. I, I thought to myself, I'm like, this is the American version of Spartacus to a certain degree, right? I mean, it is, you know, rising up against, uh, you know, against the man, you know, it's like taking power back. Uh, and to and be- the man is getting mad and the man is burning your books and the man yeah. is condemning your books. And the man is saying, this book is evil. I mean, there's a congressman from Oklahoma. He's actually, you know, the head of a political dynasty family. His name, his name at the time was Lyle Boren and his son, David Boren, became a congressman after him. And I think a governor and was the president of my college when I went to college. Oh, wow. David Boren is like why I have a scholar. Like David Boren did good things. Um, but his dad called this book, quote, a lie, a black infernal creation of a twisted, distorted mind. Wow. Yeah. And meanwhile, here in California, you have like the Chamber of Commerce, the Chamber of Agriculture. They're condemning this book. They're saying that they are going to boycott all 20th century Fox pictures if Daryl Zanuck makes this film. I mean, in a way, The Grapes of Wrath, I guess, it's most direct parallel to today in terms of movies is something like The Big Short. 
But even that had a couple years. Well, that's of, what I was thinking. Yeah, of leeway and the Big Short. The tone of that movie is, you know, now we deal with like, oh, we've been screwed over by the banks. They're yeah, basically the same problem, with kind of an ironic flip humor. Like, look at these dicks. Right. Ah. Right. Yeah, look at them. Whereas the Grapes of Wrath is incredibly sincere. It is just straightforward. This is a problem. And well, I would say the big difference between Big Short and Grapes of Wrath, there are many, but this is about the people affected, right? And the Big Short are about the people who caused. Right. Uh, and, exactly. and, you know, so I think you are, when you watch this movie, you can't help but be incredibly sympathetic to this journey. And it, to me, just to get into the movie for a second, it's a tough film to get started in because I feel like the beginning of the film feels like a stage play. It, it, it feels like an adaptation of literature. It doesn't feel like a film. It, a lot of monologues. Um, and you don't really get the emotional connection until the journey begins, which, by the way, did you see the similarities between like Beverly Hillbillies and this? Did the Beverly Hillbillies <laughs> just like rip this off? I mean, it feels so like that car, the way that they're all traveling in it, the grandma. I was like, oh, is this like, did Beverly Hillbillies just become like a parody of, I mean, you know, I, I, I couldn't help but not, or was that kind of vehicle and transportation and that kind of family unit just so prevalent that it just is all around. I, I couldn't quite put it all together. <laughs> I don't know, but I hear what you're saying about the stage play stuff because, I mean, this is John Ford. You know, John Ford's already John Ford at right. this point. He's already made stagecoach. And we're used to thinking of him as this guy with gigantic vistas. Mm -hmm. And so much of this takes place indoors, even when it's supposed to be outdoors. You know, it's painted right. backdrops. It looks like a stage. It looks really claustrophobic. And I don't think the film... You know, especially in those early scenes when Henry Fonda has returned home, he's wandering his his parents' homestead. It does not look at all like he's outside. No, uh, not at all. And, you know, Greg Tolan, who is a cinematographer for Citizen Kane, also is a cinematographer for this film. And he does some really interesting things. This is before Citizen Kane comes out. But the low light in this movie is amazing. Like, there's that whole scene where they're in the homestead, and it's almost one candle. You know, it it's very much like what Kubrick was doing with Barry Lyndon, uh, you know, later on. But it's, it's a, it, those are the impressive things in this film. It's like those shots and the way the movie was put together is visually interesting. It's just very different. And by the way, so is the subject matter for John Ford. I mean, he's viewed as a conservative, right? And and I think people are kind of blown away that he makes these Okies so sympathetic. Yeah, he did not pick this, you know, it was sort of mm -hmm. assigned to him. I, I think even Zanuck was like, man, I wish we had Ca Capra. I wish Capra right. could be doing this, oh, but I think they didn't have Capra. So he was like, Ford, you're up. And Ford, I think the reason that he said yes, kind of the reason he said is that, you know, John Ford, he's very Irish. He'd go on to make like the quiet man. He read this and he was like, oh, this reminds me of my family leaving Ireland during the potato famine. Right. So he was like, to me, this is a story of family. And I think it, I think kind of that throws off the, the film from the book a little bit. You know, the book is a story about politics with a right. family. Ford is like, well, let's make it the story of a family. And kind of cuts away as much of the politics as he can. Well, and again- Going back to what my big issue was at the beginning of the film, that's when the movie starts to work for me because it feels like it starts to transcend the novel, right? You're you're laying down a lot of exposition at the top, but then once you get into this family unit, it really it engages you. I, I felt like I was like, am I going to come on the show and talk down about Grapes of Wrath? But all of a sudden, 
I'm locked in. I don't know if it happens around the diner scene when, you know, they they are stopping for gas and they get sold a loaf of bread. Like that. I love that scene. Oh, it's amazing. That scene is so much about, like, the family and their dignity and how, you know, Pa Joe is like, I have 10 cents. Yes, the loaf of bread is 15. Cut off a nickel. I yeah. don't want a nickel more than I've paid for. And then the waitress is griping about it. And then the waitress starts to feel bad that she's giving them a hard time and sells them nickel candy and lies and says it's two for a penny because he knows she knows he'll never say yes to charity. And what I love is you see the decency of, for lack of a better term, the common man. You know, this is, you know, a very beautiful image of what we want America to be. We are helping the fellow man and we see these issues because when she gives the candy to them, then all of a sudden the truck drivers give her extra money. You know, it's like- The never ending Starbucks drive through line. Yeah, no, it just becomes this very patriotic film, you know, yeah. or- you, I think you can says, feel very oh, truck drivers. It's like, I love truck drivers. I love an American truck driver. <laughs> By the way, uh, can we talk about the joke in the movie that is not finished? There's a joke that's set up in the movie that is finished in the novel, but in here you only hear the beginning part of the joke. Uh, can I finish it for you? Yeah. So, okay. Uh, so basically the truck driver in this film, uh, the joke is this. Uh, a little kid comes late to school and the teacher says, why are you late? And the kid says, I had to take a heifer down to get her bread. And the teacher says, couldn't your old man do it? And the kid says, sure he could, but he's not as good as the bull. Wow. So that was not, uh, that was not, in, I, I don't know if that was not allowed in the movie or that was, but that's, if you were watching the film and you, you left un, uh, upset that you did not get the full joke, that is the full joke. But I mean, I do think, I like the beginning of the film more than you, but I think you can feel so much that this is a film at war with itself mm -hmm. a little bit. Yeah. yeah. I mean, starting with the musical credits, like the opening song is so happy. I think what I was also struck by in the beginning, and not that I didn't like the beginning, it just took me a while to kind of emotionally connect to it, but how dark it was. You know, you you meet this character, you meet Tom Joad, and immediately find out he is, you know, just fresh out of prison. For murder. For murder. And he's, he's not innocent. innocent. It's no. not like he was wrongly accused. He did this. He did homicide. Yeah, homicide. And he is an interesting character right out of the game. It's like, oh, wow, this is much darker than I'm, than I'm used to. And then you have this scene with a former priest who's like, I can't do it anymore. I, I lost that. And I was like, oh, this is... A, a more complex film than I was even expecting. And and those themes continue to go through because these characters aren't squeaky clean. They're not, um, you know, the last monologue in the film, which is probably the most famous part of this, where it basically is a call to, you know, wherever workers are troubled, I'll be there. Wherever, you know, people are being mistreated, I'll be there. Is a is almost a, a very rare moment in this film, which is, I think, very grounded and not very black and white. It's like he's not that character the whole way through. Yeah, we, I mean, we learn things about Tom Joad right off the bat, that he has a short temper, that he's mm -hmm. going to snap at the truck driver who he thinks has given him a little bit yeah. of attitude, that he's not that embarrassed that he killed a man, Yeah, that his whole family is like, you broke out of prison. They just assume he broke out of prison. Everybody in his family is like, no way he got paroled. You broke out of prison. And he's like, no, no, no. I did it legally. I got papers. I love how they just keep on hitting it, though. It really, like, literally every character in this scene, 
believes it. Like they <laughs> like even though he's saying he got paroled, they're like, nah, you did you break broke it. out of yeah. prison. And there's something in the tone though that I find almost like he's this spirit walker. You know, he mm-hmm. ends the movie being like, I'm gonna be the spirit walker. Yeah. Of revolution, but he kind of starts in this way as well. You know, you have that image of him far, far, far away walking towards a crossroads. A crossroads, Amy. Always so symbolic. Always it's so symbolic. So symbolic. And then he gets to the crossroads, and it's like the store at the crossroads is just called Crossroads. In case you didn't get it, it was like Crossroads. <laughs> but you sense a man going from one part of his life where he's like, by the I'm way, though, can we just admit? Kid. Can we just admit, if you did own a store at the Crossroads, I think that's a pretty good name. Okay, but there's so many Crossroads. It used to be Crossroad number 35, Crossroad is that number the same, 76. Is that the Crossroad where uh, Tom Hanks from Castaway also uh, gets uh, – it's, like, I mean, <laughs> it's a real deep dive. I was afraid you were about to make a Bone Thugs and Harmony joke. No, I mean, there's so <laughs> many other ones to make. I mean, Britney Spears, Ralph Macchio. People, Crossroads play a very important part, normally at the end. Not at the beginning. Not at the beginning, but he's approaching the beginning. And it it almost kind of sets up like this metaphorical joke, right? Mm -hmm. Because he wanders through this world. He meets the priest. I want to listen to a little bit of the priest in a second, but he meets a priest and then he meets a guy whose name is literally Graves. And it's like basically a priest, a murderer, and a man who's already talking about himself like he's dead. A man who says he's a ghost in his scene. Yeah. Meet up in an abandoned house. You know, bada bing, bada boom, what's going to happen? Well, that's why it feels to me so much like a play. You know, it, it feels like, here's my monologue, here's my story, and you're just kind of seeing vignettes of people affected by this. And and that's, to me, it was really great writing, but it wasn't necessarily uh, um, as emotionally affecting as I wanted it to be. I, I mean, I kind of like this sort of high-toned mm-hmm. metaphor a lot, but I do want to listen to a little bit of the preacher speech. And this is John Carradine as Jim Casey. By the way, initials JC, thus part of the grand oh, Stephen wow. King legacy of I Am a Christ figure. But he's explaining why he can't be a priest anymore, and he's explaining the questions he's trying to get to. I, lo- I love this character. A girl was just a girl to you. To me, these holy vessels, I was saving their souls. I asked myself, what is this here called Holy Spirit? Maybe that's love. Why I love everybody so much, I'm fit to bust sometimes. So, maybe there ain't no sin, there ain't no virtue. It's just what people does. Some things folks do is nice, and some ain't so nice. And that's all any man's got a right to say. Of course, I'll say a grace if somebody sets out the food. But my heart ain't in it. Nice drinking liquor. Yeah, it ought to be. That's factory liquor. Cost me a buck. I also just love the idea of factory liquor yeah. and that he's talking about women were, were holy vessels in, but also he was getting them all riled up and then sleeping with them. I, I mean, it's a great, again, yeah, I love it too. I mean, this is where the movie really goes for it. And again, at the time, 1940, this is, I think, really pushing the limits, right? I mean, of what you can say and do in film. You have a preacher who's admitting to having sex with his congregation. While drinking. Yeah, um, but... You know, he really is a Christ figure in this film. You know, he dies and and is part of the the awakening of Tom Joad. I mean, that I think that from that that death forward, 
you really start to see that change and, and it seep into him. Yeah, um, because he's martyred, really. Yeah. You know, he's right. murdered by the men who want to break up the strike. And and there's something in the way – I mean, if this is a movie about family, but the way he talks about love, he expands it so much bigger to generosity to your fellow man. Yeah. To loving everybody. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know, this whole film does something that I feel like is so interesting. And I haven't seen this done in a film in really my memory, which is it shows how easy it is to come into poverty and that the people who are impoverished, homeless, came from some place. And I think that we often forget the humanity of these people. We live in LA and there's an incredibly terrible homeless population problem here. And it's so easy to kind of just put blinders on it and knock it out. And this film really is asking us to engage more. We need to lift each other up. We need to figure out how to make it better. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't stop thinking about that watching this movie too, you know, about how even with our homeless encampments here that we have in LA, which... You know, every year they're worse than they were the year before. Yeah. We have people trying to tear them down. We have people trying to get rid of the tents. You know, that people yeah. people have kind of set up cities in little areas. You oh, know? you can see it and you can see when they've cleaned it out in one area yeah. and just moves to the next. And, those, and it looks like this. It does. And that's what I love about this movie is like these camps feel realistic. And that's really upsetting that, you know, this movie came out in 1940. We're now in 2019 and we're, we're seeing a, another version of this. Exactly. And it still seems like bankers are behind it. But I also kept thinking, you know, of of what's happening south of the border, you know, of families packing up as many of as many of the people in their family as they can and trying to head at least north to California in case it's better heading north right. to America in some sort of way. And the way we talk about people making a really difficult, hard choice that's not easy for anybody in their family to do. Nobody wants to pack up their three year old kid and right. you know cross three countries to try to get up here. And the way that say like the gas station workers talk about the Joads when they're about to drive into the Mojave feels a lot like the way we talk about these people making their trek past the desert to get to America. I mean, listen to this. It just sounded like Fox News people. Oh, but I'd hate to hit that desert in a jalopy like that. You and me got sense. Them Okies got no sense and no feeling. They ain't human. No human being wouldn't live the way they do. Human being couldn't stand to be so miserable. Just don't know any better, I guess. Yeah, I mean, that's what brings this film home and, and makes it, I think, even more resonant than I was expecting it to be. Also, I mean, a subtle thing in there that I really enjoyed, and I think it's more of the time than it is of the statement, is like these two guys are just littering the entire time that they're having this conversation, <laughs> just throwing their trash on the ground. Um, but they're also in white, and I think that that's a beautiful visual distinction. You know, these uh, you know, are our Oki family, the Jodes are, you know, 
not in tatters. They have a lot of self-respect, but just to juxtapose them with these guys all in white, prim and proper. And I know of the time the gas station attendants look like that, but it is a, a an interesting visual separation. Yeah, it does feel like the people in here who have stable jobs very visibly have stable jobs. They're wearing uniforms at the diners. They're wearing sheriff's uniforms, but there's sort of like an us versus them, even in the costuming. Yeah. If you have enough money, you don't empathize with the Jodes. You are dressed a certain way. You're cleaner, you're shinier, and you're homogenous with the other people around you, whereas the Jodes are, in their in raggedness, individuals. Right. And then, you know, you get to the end of the film or the third act of the film where they come into this government camp where you have this kind of beautiful middle ground, this guy in a more relaxed look. You know, he's, it seems like he's splitting the difference between the two. He doesn't feel incredibly buttoned up. He feels like an individual, but yet he's on the other side of it. He feels like FDR. You know, it feels like they picked an actor who looks like FDR to represent the government saying, we have running water for you. We will take care of you. We will give you dignity. This is a place where you'll get to vote on the men who represent this community and that we are not going to let people just come in and tear this place down. The person who represents law and order is very visibly being like the president. And the president, I think, returned the favor before this or maybe triggered the favor by sticking up for the Grapes of Wrath when everybody was talking about condemning it. You know, he said there are 500,000 Americans that live in the covers of this book. Right. And so there is something lovely in that. Although I also really like how in that scene, the kids, the really young kids see a toilet for the first time and they're freaked out by it. There's where you wash your hands. What's these? Well, I reckon you stand in them little rooms and water comes down on that little jigger up there. You take a bath. Oh, look, just like in the catalog. Hey, don't you go among here. No, you didn't. You busted it. All I done was pull that string. Yeah, although what is also one of the big changes from the book to the movie where I think you can really see Zanuck trying to make this a cheerful story, a more cheerful story at least than the book is, is that in the book, they wind up in California in this government camp earlier. This is one of their first stops. And they're like, okay, this won't be too bad. We're all right. And then they wind up in the very, very bad like picking plant where there's a strike. In the movie, they're like, let's reverse it. Let's make it look like the fortunes are going up, whereas in the book, their fortunes are continuing to go down. Interesting. You know, it, this film is complicated because the government definitely is the savior. Um, unions are the savior. But we're in a time, and I imagine there's a certain part of this, even back in the 40s, where is the government always looking out for the people? You know, and if we look at what's going on in, in our country, like with Flint, you know, that, you know, is the government taking care of the people in Flint? And from everything that I know and uh, from my friends who have family there, they are not, you know. And that and it's a, it's an interesting film that says the government will take care of you. At this time, though, was the government really taking care of people? Or is this an idealized view that the government is there for them as well? I think FDR on a national level was doing his best, but I think... On local levels, it was a lot more hit and miss, a lot more hit and miss. And it's interesting, too, because I I think the Flynn is a really interesting parallel because, you know, that's a case where the local government of Michigan, from what I've sort of understood about it, made a deal with a water bottling company to siphon good water for them and leave bad water for their actual citizens to pick big business over the local person. And when you're that local person, you don't know who to yell at. 
right. in that question of who do you yell at when things have gotten, even since that time, bigger and bigger and bigger and more and more and more corporate, corporatized. I feel like back in the 40s, if you were going to be, you, there's all those movies of like, let's put on a show, the mean local bankers doing right. this, even It's a Wonderful Life. It's this one mean guy right here. And in Grapes of Wrath, you see the start of it's not that local banker guy. It's the guy above him and the guy above him. And you even get this whole lecture about it right here. They told me to tell you to get off, and that's what I'm telling you. You mean get off my own land? Oh, don't go to blaming me. It ain't my fault. Whose fault is it? You know who owns the land, the Shawnee Land and Cattle Company. And who's the Shawnee Land and Cattle Company? It ain't nobody. It's a company. They got a president, ain't they? They got somebody who knows what a shotgun's for, ain't they? Oh, son, it ain't his fault because the bank tells him what to do. All right. Where's the bank? Tulsa. What's the use of picking on him? He ain't nothing but the manager. And he's half crazy himself trying to keep up with his orders from the east. Then who do we shoot? Brother, I don't know. If I did, I'd tell you. I just don't know who's to blame. Well, I'm right here to tell you, mister, there ain't nobody gonna push me off my land. My grandpa took up this land 70 years ago. My pa was born here. We was all born on it. And some of us was killed on it. And the following scene after this, when their house is literally getting bulldozed, you know, they want to, you know, shoot this guy. They have a shotgun out at this guy. And, like, he's like, I I need to protect my family. You know, it. it he's like, I'm your neighbor. I need $3 a day. $3 yeah. a day sounds like a fortune when you realize what the family starts making later in California. Oh, my God, yeah. And, but even the way that Ford shoots them, like, all those men behind the tractors tear, tearing down the house, they're robotic looking. You know, they have goggles on, hats. He focuses on the tractors just coming at you, symmetrical, mechanized. You can't beat the tractors the way that he shoots them. No, I mean, in the way that the tractor just goes through that, just through the it's house. It's like, you got kids in there? Yeah, <laughs> like, I know. There was no, there was no, like, <laughs> no questions asked. It's like, we're, we're going through. But I, but that question of who do you shoot, I find that so frustrating. I, you know, it, it would shoot. I feel like I should not say, like, Shoot, as in like, yeah, that's our solution. But no, the no. question of who is to blame. Well, and yeah, it, that, that's, I mean, and it gets more and more complicated every day. I mean, but this is 1940 and it's already complicated. Exactly. And what's interesting is like, even when they're making this film, you know, Fox Studio is controlled at the time by Chase National Bank. Mm. And the, everybody's worried. Like when Steinbeck's novel gets purchased by Zanuck, Steinbeck's immediate fear is, I know you guys are owned by the bank. I know I go hard on this gigantic, huge bank. I bet you're buying my book so that you could bury it, you know, kind of catch a right. kill. He really thought that Fox might be buying this book just to make sure nobody could make the movie. And he was really terrified. But Zanuck was a huge defender of this book, and he said he loved it. And the head of the bank was like, my wife thought it was a great read. So he basically thought, you can sell tickets and make me money by making fun of me. That's fine. Wow. And at the premiere, there was a bunch of bank executives and women in furs all glammed up and being like, I loved it. It is just uh, – it's kind of head spinning. Well, I think it's so hard – to see yourself. Like, I remember somebody I was talking to about comedy. They're like, you can always make jokes about people in your life because they will not think it's themselves. They don't see themselves in it. Even though you're like, it's so clearly you. They just don't see it because they're like, oh, yeah. Like, they're always going to be on the other side. Well, if clearly that's not me. I don't do that. They're not self-reflective to a certain degree. I think that most people aren't, you know, so. Let me tell you a joke about this Clipper fan I know. He's like, uh, you, got, you got this heifer. You know, uh, John Ford does something really interesting here. No rehearsal, right? He wants to do everything in one take. You know, he wants to catch the most spontaneous moment. You're getting these people just 
first instinct. So I feel like the movie has um, a flavor to it that feels a lot more naturalistic than some of the other things at the time. It doesn't seem as performative, if that makes sense. Very similar to what I understand of Clint Eastwood. You know, Clint Eastwood does very few takes. And that's an interesting question, you know, because absolutely Clint Eastwood is a person inspired heavily by John Ford, the great Western director. Do you consider this film a Western? You know, at the time, it feels like a modern day Western, right? It's a, it's it's moving out west. It's a different journey. You know, you're going from town to town. There's lawmen, and you're fighting against the, you know, the or not lawmen, but you know, corrupt sheriffs, corrupt, you know, people running these farms. There is an element to it that I think has some similarities. They build in these moments throughout that have some excitement. I mean, when the when the three guys come to the the dance night. You know, you know this is happening. It's being built up. It does feel like a, uh, you know, the bad guys are coming to town. Very much like high noon. Here they come. What's going to happen? And I love that you said high noon because so much of this film, Pa Jode reminds me of one of those morally weak characters in high noon. You know, Pa is not interested in doing anything for the greater good of humanity. He's like, I see this very clearly. My family needs five cents. I'm not going to strike, even if it means we're going to get two and a half cents in a little bit, because I, I don't know if you're, you're being serious about that. Right. You know, Pa's very pragmatic. And he he's, has to look out for his immediate family. And, you know, I think the film gets frustrated with him, but it also doesn't condemn him for that. It makes very logical sense. Everybody else is starving. Why should he do that? Well— He can't see the bigger picture. These are not politicized people. No, I think you you're watching a lot of people make— choices that you can you can relate to like these characters are not black and white they make odd choices i mean even the fact when when grandma dies in the back of the the jalopy and they lie to this you know the checkpoint people like she's sick we got to bring her to the hospital but she's dead you know it's like and they you know there are these moments where everyone is making some very difficult choices, but it is for the greater good or what they think the greater good is. And, you know, again, we are living uh, oftentimes in a, in a micro point of view, not a macro point of view. And I think that that's what this movie consistently shows over and over again until the end, until Henry Fonda says, no, no, I see the big picture. I'm going to take what you all feel and kind of help get it out into society. I, I do think... If there is a character that I think is maybe a little too simple in here, though, mm-hmm. it is Ma Jode. You know, because Ma Jode is very much this idealized mom, right? right. She's just lying about her mother being dead in her arms is yeah. the worst thing she does. Other than that, she's sort of like, I. she talks in kind of this voice I don't actually love. I feel bad. I feel bad picking on this character. She doesn't sound always Oklahoman to me. Okay. I, I, I don't know. Something about her just feels a little bit like, I love my mom. Don't want to ever do anything to cross my right. mom. And it doesn't make her feel like a character on her own. I kept doing this thing of picturing that character being a little bit more dirt under her nails, a little bit right. angrier. But yeah, I mean, let's listen to the way the mom talks. Do you think she sounds like a phony the way I do? I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I feel bad even saying this. I love the bird lady. There was a time we was on the land. There was a boundary to us then. Old folks died off and little fellers come. We was always one thing. We was the family. Kind of whole and clear. But now we ain't clear no more. There ain't nothing that keeps us clear. Al, he's a hankering of gibbetin' to be off on his own. Uncle John's just dragging around. 
Your pa's lost his place. He ain't the head no more. We're cracking up, Tom. We ain't no family now. I mean, I do love her face. Right. You know, she has a face that I think is really perfect for the role, but there's something when she says little fellers, I don't really buy it. Interesting. But doesn't her speech remind you a little bit of the Corleones? Huh. You know, it's interesting. I watched this film right after watching The Godfather, like we both did, but it is really interesting to see the idea of family, sacrificing for family coming up here. Yeah, it, it, I couldn't help but separate these two families, as different as they are, but they're both trying to, what, protect their family. Yeah, and, having and, a family break apart to protect the family. Yeah. By the way, you know, she was an interesting choice for the role. I, I think I like her. I know that you feel like she's a little bit over the top, but... Um, I just little fellers told me that this shit was a bit over the top. Uh, Balula Bondi actually tested for this role. She thought she did so good. She thought she nailed it that she bought a jalopy and moved to Bakersfield to research the lives of migrant workers and then did not get it. And uh, it, she would have been good. Yeah, it would have been really interesting to see that, but I just love that idea, like... Nailed it. All right. Get it <laughs> yeah. into character. Let's go. And then I like, mean she'd be perfect. Beula, like for people who were like are like Beulah Bonnet, we already talked about yeah. her before. She's the one that Frank Capra loves. She's in all of the Frank Capra movies. You know, she's the mom and it's a wonderful life. Right. Mr. Smith goes to Washington. She's the mom, the mom of Jimmy Stewart. And she would be great. I feel like she would bring just enough darkness. Because they talk about Ma Joe before you even meet her as a person who's able to beat a peddler with a chicken so much that like the peddler, the chicken loses everything but the two legs. She's just holding <laughs> two drumsticks. And that the reason she was using a chicken is she meant to use an ax. Like, I don't really see this Monjoad using an ax. Right, right. I could see Beulah <laughs> no, Bondi using an ax. Yes, I can. I totally agree with that. Well, you know, there's some interesting performances here. And I think that John Ford had an interesting way of working with his actors. And it seems like a lot of it was just embarrassing them or just beating them down. I mean, you know, he was um, so uh, awful to Doris Bowden. So Doris Bowden plays uh, Rosham, Rashman. Rose of Sharon, but it's kind of Rose of Sharon. Rose of Sharon. You know, I couldn't help, I couldn't help when <laughs> I, I was like. Paul Sharon. Paul Sharon. I couldn't help when I looked at her, it felt like this is like Marilyn from the Munsters. Like, you know, it's like we're in the, like, she's so like, woo, hey, I'm, you know. Uh, but she was the uh, girlfriend and later wife of the screenwriter, uh, Nanali Johnson. But basically Ford was just like chastised her for coming to set with her hair undone, you know, and then chastised her for fixing her hair. It just humiliated her, but got this performance out of her, you know, just pushed her so hard to get. I actually think she's great in the film. Yeah, I mean, you see her be terrified. Like she seems so embarrassed to be pregnant, so embarrassed to exist. You have another son-in-law. Son-in-laws are just really getting a hard yeah. streak oh, in the yeah. last couple of movies. Another son-in-law who runs away is a horrible husband to her. But yeah, like she, when they did the dancing scene, you know, they did it in one take. She was so happy. She started clapping. She's like, oh, we nailed it at the dance. Yeah. And Ford just started screaming at her, calling that unprofessional to cheer when they had a oh, rap. Oh, man. I mean, it's real brutal. He it, also, I mean, he didn't just do it to women, too. He also chastised Frank Darien, who plays Uncle John, right, for over-emoting during the scene which Ma is making the stew in front of the starving children, you know. By the time Ford had calmed down, right? But he got so worked up that he needed time to calm down. He was like, you're so <laughs> terrible. That it took such a toll on Frank Darien that 
he was so exhausted by Ford losing his shit that he nailed the scene. Like, it's so, like, what Can't was going... can just trust people to act? We don't know the alternate history, which is that they could have just done it fine. Uh, but I don't know. I mean, there's this, apparently this joke where, like, when uh, the actress who played Rosa Sharn was just broken. Yeah. Ford was like, I bet I can make you laugh. And she was like, there's no way you can make me laugh. And do you know what he did? What? He just looked her in the eye and he went, fornication. Well, but, look, I would make, it almost made me laugh. <laughs> Um, I mean, the only person that he couldn't bully actually turns out to be JC himself, turns out to be Carradine. Well, yeah, they had this very contentious relationship, right? Yeah, because Carradine was just like, he would listen to the way that Ford would tell him to do things. Carradine, I mean, the whole staging thing that Ford had in mind when it came to Carradine versus Tom Joad is that Henry Fonda would play Tom Joad very upright, very stiff. He kind of looks like a skeleton, a broom a lot of the time. And he would, meanwhile, contrast them. You see it even in their first scene together by having Carradine get on his haunches, climb around, be like a floppy spider is how he would tell him to move. Oh, interesting. And Very Carradine, Fredo-like. Exactly. And Carradine would sort of be like, yeah, you're right. Very I mean, Fredo-like. you think yeah. about that. You think about what we talked about in Godfather 2. Like, you have Al Pacino separate, straight, you know, uh, very much a contained yeah. anger. And then you have Fredo who's just this, yeah. Yeah, this noodle. Yeah. I mean, the Don Carradine performance, though, in this, didn't it remind you a little bit of, um, I can't remember the actor's name, but do you remember when we were watching The Searchers and there's a guy who's like, oh, la-da-da. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I I actually thought that this was the realistic version of that. Like, it didn't feel over the top. Like, Carradine doesn't feel like a caricature. Like, that character did yeah. to me. Like, I feel like there's a... Ha, ha, Yes, right. They, they, oh, God, that guy. Right. It just felt like, yeah. It was just felt like, oh, boy, that, that character yeah. really got But it is me. cool that you start seeing these kind of, like, early touchstones of what he's going to be putting in the surgery. Yeah. You know, the mom looking out the kitchen door as a man comes up from the yard and then going outside. Or a conflicted hero, because you also have John Wayne in that movie, who is not a great man. And I, and I, and I do believe... That Henry Fonda, when he comes in, is not a great man. You know, he is he grows to learn and 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 uh, and open up his worldview. And or he grows to learn that there's something he doesn't know. Like he's right. always like the known knowns and the unknown knowns. He yeah. grows to know that there's knowns he doesn't unknow. I know I yeah. don't know how. I'm 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 no Rumsfeld. I can't remember how that uh. works. But yes, he grows to learn that there are things that he needs to learn. Yeah, and again, just to talk a little bit about Henry Fonda here. You know, his style of acting reminded me of John Wayne. They they both are these very upright men. And even though their backgrounds are very different, you know, uh, they have a very kind of stilted way of performing that oddly works. I, we've seen so many, you know, pre-1940 films that, that feel like, I am acting and I'm saying my words, I'm doing my thing. And they're able to kind of split the difference of like what Marlon Brando eventually brings when he's kind of really getting into this a uh, much more emotional point of view. It's interesting. I'm just kind of fascinated by how much emotion they're able to get out through their more performative acting style. Does that make sense? Yeah. I, I'm going back and forth in my head over like whether or not Tom Joad feels more like an icon or a person. You know? I think he feels like a person and then he feels like an icon. Don't you feel like he... Because at the end, it's very much like an icon. I do respect the idea of Stars who came out and they were stars. You know, people who came out and they're like, I am doing this performance and I want you to synergize me, Henry Fonda, the guy who just played Lincoln, with me, Henry Fonda, who's also playing Tom Joad. I want you to see that this is 
an actor embodying something for you guys. Mm-hmm. You know, the, of taking it on and not just being like a man who disappears or blah, 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 blah. Well, I mean, that's, I, I mean, that's yeah. the way that we can look at all major stars, right? You go see a Will Smith movie, you're always going to see Will Smith. I, I, I feel like Tom Cruise will have these moments of breaking off and doing something that feels very different. But for the most part, it's- He hasn't done it in a decade. Yeah, he hasn't done it in a, yeah, a yeah. long time. Um, but you're getting a Tom Cruise movie. You're getting a Will Smith movie. Um, I think you're getting a George Clooney movie. These big, big stars. And I think what people get so excited about is, you know, Brad Pitt, I think, very much bucks that trend. Like, he fights against, you don't know what, I don't know what a Brad Pitt movie is. Like, uh, you know, I think he's always kind of shucking and jiving. And I think if you don't give people that one thing, you're not like a movie star. You're like this interesting person. Because I think you go to see the person, not the role, Yeah, that makes sense. And But yet you can embody, that's not saying that these people are bad actors, but you're seeing a part of them in that thing. That's the only way I think you become that kind of giant movie star. Yeah, but part of the through line here that I thought was really interesting is, you know, Jane Fonda, daughter, mm. famously, of, of Henry, what the person who first told her she could act besides her dad was our good friend Lee Strasberg, who we just saw as Hyman Roth. She said that she met him in, eight, in 1958, and that he was the first person who told her that she had real talent. And that night she went to bed, and when she woke up, she was thinking about acting. And that was when she knew she had to be an actor. It was right. when Lee Strasberg was like, you got to wow. do this. Well, I mean, Jane Fonda is somebody that I know and uh, have been so blown away by what she does. I mean, currently <laughs> she's getting arrested weekly in Washington, D.C., fighting for climate change. She's someone who is fighting for... For the people and and has always been this person who is bringing social issues to the forefront, very involved in elections um, and politically minded. I'm, I'm constantly blown away by her. And, and, and I can't help but think like, you know, having this influence early on definitely just informs the DNA. It makes you up. I mean, literally Steinbeck says, you know, Henry Fonda's performance in this, you know, it goes, he, his performance makes me believe my own words. You know, he's like, he encapsulates everything that I ever wanted to convey in this character. And, and you do leave, I, I can't now look at Henry Fonda in any other way because he has become iconic. After you see that scene in the course of this movie, you can't separate him. And then we're going back to what you're saying, like Lincoln, this, all of a sudden yeah. you start to build this, this person. Going and, forward, 12 Angry Men. Yeah. Yeah. And, and He's our moral compass. He really is. And he would, you know, try to downplay that, I think, later in his life. But I loved hearing him talk about, about Jane in the 70s. Uh, she's not only this incredible actress, but she's the activist that you would know her to be. And I'm in, in nothing but uh, sympathy with... You're proud of that part of her, right? Yeah, I'm part of it. <clears throat> only in as much <clears throat> as I'm in sympathy. Yes. It's not in me to be an activist. Just... In my makeup, I'm not, she's extrovert, I'm very introvert. It's impossible, it would be impossible for me to get up as much as my heart might be full and my head full of a cause to face an audience in my character to talk about it. I couldn't do that. Mm. I'm in awe that she does to five people or 5,000 people Mm. and is good at it and feels deeply. You know, I love that sentiment because it shows that there's different types of activism, right? You can be literally on the front lines, in the marches, making the signs, doing the phone calls, knocking on doors, and that's a very valuable type of activism. Or you could be making films that change 
people's minds. And and that's obviously a very small sect, but it's like he's doing a form of activism. He may not view it as that, but he's attracted to these roles that are saying these things. And an actor of his status can get that going. This is why he, you know, like we said, he signed a seven-year deal because he knew that this part, you know, not only is going to get him acclaimed, but I think he felt connected to this character. Yeah, so, and a lot of the films he got stuck doing for those seven years weren't really worth him, but in a way it was worth it to him for this role. Yeah. Like he kind of sold himself a little bit. He got himself sold to a bad deal. I, I mean, I look at Brad Pitt again as another kind of an actor um, that does this, you know, with his production company, making these films. Like you you have a choice to make things and do things in a different way. Adam McKay very much like that, you know, with his company. Like, you, what are we saying here? What are we saying? And like he's saying, I'm nervous to get up in front of a crowd. Well, as Henry Fonda he is, but as a character, he may do a bigger service. Like we talk about this a lot, like how these films change culture because they make something acceptable. Yeah, and I do wish that this film had been a little bit more able to get free from the Hayes Code and include a lot more of like the religious satire, the political satire that the book has. But would it have been as successful? I wonder. I mean, the line that kind of frustrates me that I wish was in the movie that is in the book takes place in this scene right here. Listen. Citizens angered at red agitators burn another squatter's camp and order agitators to leave the county. Listen, what is these reds anyway? Every time you turn around, somebody calls somebody else a red. What is these reds anyway? Oh, I ain't talking about that one way or the other. All I'm saying is that there is going to be a fight at the camp Saturday night, and there'll be deputies ready to go in. I mean, the, the line that the man says in the book is, a red is any son of a bitch that wants 30 cents an hour when we're paying 25. Right. And that, I mean, that is basically what is happening today, even today. I mean, we're throwing around words like communist and socialist when it's yeah. just people who want five cents more an hour. Right. You know, and or just and, not want to die racing to get your Amazon package out in uh, in you know a matter of minutes. Exactly, exactly. But this idea of using words as scare tactics, and and this idea of you know, it's amazing that we still fall for the kind of sabotage of bad actors dis, dis, disturbing movements. You know, yeah. even now when we have protests. Well, you know, what I thought was so interesting. Like, um, you know, we talk about Reds, right? So Stalin bans this film in the Soviet Union, and why does he ban it? Do you know, do you want to take a guess on why he bans it? Why does he ban it? He bans it because it showed that the poorest Americans could afford cars. And he felt like that was the most damning thing. He didn't want people to see that. Like, like, like it's like, it's such a crazy mentality where it's like, oh, well, even there, if they're poor, they can have a car? Like, no, 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 no. That That's a, the wrong message. We cannot send that out. And the movie really has two endings. You know, there's the ending that it meant to have. And then there's the ending that it added on top of it to make sure it was a little bit more cheerful. I mean, the ending that it meant to have is when Tom Joad says goodbye to his mom and he gives that famous speech. You know, he he starts off his speech by saying the things that are starting to coalesce into his mind that can't even really be considered a thought yet, which maybe is how this movie is even safe. It's not even Tom Joad saying, I am a communist. It's Tom Joad saying, there's something on my head and I don't quite get it yet. I don't have the words. You know what I've been thinking about? About Casey. About what he said, what he done, about how he died. And I remember all of it. He was a good man. I've been thinking about us, too. About our people living like pigs and 
good, rich land laying fallow. Or maybe one guy with a million acres and a hundred thousand farmers starving. And I've been wondering if all our folks got together and yelled. Oh, Tommy, they'd drive you out and cut you down just they're like they've done to Casey. They'd drive me anyways. Sooner or later they'd get me for one thing, if not for another. And then from there, he goes into that grand, beautiful climax. How am I going to know about you, Tommy? Why, they could kill you, and I'd never know. They could hurt you. How am I going to know? Well, maybe it's like Casey says. A fella ain't got a soul of his own, just a little piece of a big soul. The one big soul that belongs to everybody. Then... Then what, Tom? Then it don't matter. I'll be all around in the dark. I'll be everywhere, wherever you can look. Wherever there's a fight so hungry people can eat, I'll be there. Wherever there's a cop beating up a guy, I'll be there. I'll be in the way guys yell when they're mad. In the way kids laugh when they're hungry and they know supper's ready. And when the people are eating the stuff they raise and living in the houses they build, I'll be there too. They did that scene in one take. I mean, it seems like everything was done in one take. And <laughs> I mean, that's a beautiful speech. It feels very superhero to me, right? Like, I'll be there. You know, I'll, like it's the, the Superman, the Batman kind of idea of like, I will be there for the people. I will protect you. I, like, Put there, up the peach symbol and yeah. I will show up. <laughs> you know, last week I, I made us all listen to our Corleone medley. Yeah. I mean, that speech itself has made such an impact in music. I mean, starting with the year that this comes out, you have Woody Guthrie, Oklahoma musician, yeah. releasing an album called Dust Bowl Songs. And he has a track on there called Tom Joad. Woody Guthrie, of course, like being the musician who famously had this machine kills fascists on his guitar. Right. Which seems sort of in line with your Henry Fonda idea. Like this artist. Yeah. At least pokes holes in fascists. Exactly. It's like, is, yeah. And Woody, I always felt like, by the way, like Woody Guthrie's song, This Land is Your Land, This Land is My Land, which he does around the same period. Like that should be our American anthem. Yeah. I love that song. Oh, I love that. I love that song. But yeah, I mean, you're more of an East Coast guy. I'm assuming you're a Bruce guy. You know what this, the, oh, this character Oh, of course. I mean, of course. I mean, he has a whole album, like The Ghost of Tom Joad. I couldn't help uh, not think of that as I was you know, watching this film and wanted to go back and listen to that album. Somebody fighting for a place to stay. A decent job where he'd be Maybe somebody struggling to be free. And of course, we gotta hear this take from Rage Against the Machine. Whenever you seen a cop beating a guy, whenever a hungry newborn baby cries, 
Amy, these are great choices, but I, I think you're missing the the real artist that captured the spirit of Tom Joad, and that is, of course, Miss Mariah Carey. <laughs> Wow, wow, Paul. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, she really captures the Dust Bowl mentality. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream is a total chocolate game changer. We start with unbelievably creamy dark chocolate ice cream. Then we add different chocolate treats, like chocolate cookies, chocolate cake, or chocolate brownies to make four decadent chocolate flavors. Because sometimes the thing that pairs best with chocolate <laughs> is more chocolate. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream. Extraordinary Dairy. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory-smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. I am very excited to introduce our next guest. His name is Randy Bryce. You might know him maybe better by his nickname, Iron Stash. He has a fantastic mustache. Uh, but just a touch of biography for Randy Bryce, if you haven't looked him up, and if you haven't looked him up right now, also to look at that beautiful stash. Randy is from Wisconsin. He went into the Army right out of high school, came out, started working in a steel factory, became a union member and then a union organizer, and really sort of came of age politically in Wisconsin in 2011 during the very major, very cool protests that they were ha that were being held in Scott Walker's office when Scott was trying to institute and did succeed in instituting a really drastic, terrible policy, um, the Act 10 laws that really disrupted the balance of unions in that state and caused a lot of economic damage. Um, Randy became nationally known in 2018 when he ran for Paul Ryan's seat for a member of the House. He did not win that race. It was a pretty gerrymandered district, but he was attributed with convincing Paul Ryan to drop out because he looked a lot cooler than Paul Ryan, the mustache. And he currently now works as a political organizer, and Grapes of Wrath is one of his favorite films. So let's talk to Randy about it. So Randy, so far on the AFI 100 list, we've seen a couple films that have touched on unions, but they've all been mm -hmm. negative. I'm thinking of On the Waterfront. I'm thinking of The Godfather trilogy. I didn't realize how much films say unions are connected to evil yeah it's it's pretty sad um i mean there there are instances where shady things have happened but i would say that that's not that that's definitely not the norm and usually when i think of unions it's it's working people like myself who the union is, has helped and it was literally i was saying during our campaign when we ran for congress was that was my ticket to the middle class um without without a union um i mean i was unable to to finish getting my degree in college because I had cancer and then I needed to go back to work just to, to get out from, you know, I was staying at my parents' house while I was recovering, but I needed to get out and pay my own way. And without a union, 
um, I'd probably be working three jobs now. Could you sort of compare this time to the context of Grapes of Wrath coming out, you know, and, and how that right. film is received? Right. And, you know, one of the things I love about that movie, um, it's just it reminds me of a time, you know, an earlier time in our history. And it's it's like a cycle repeating itself again. We're seeing a lot of, you know, homeless people in Milwaukee. They're they're talking about removing encampments that are living underneath the, the freeway. Um, it's starting to get cold in, you know, this part of the country. And there, there's a big concern. People are seeing that with all of this, these austerity measures in place, that it's hard to get by day to day. And that's why, you know, this last year, we've seen more pickets. Um, I was just at the Congressional Progressive Caucus. They had a, a strategy summit um, last week. And there was talk about, you know, just there have been so many pickets and labor actions this past year than than in any other time in recent history. I mean, I love that. And what what was really striking about this watch of the Grapes of Wrath, you know, it's not so much like you watch the formation of a union. You just see the sense of the people who are the workers get the shape of the need for why there is a union. But then you have main characters like Pa Jode, who really, he's unable to think in that sort of a picture he can only see, you know, and he has a fair argument for himself about like the immediate needs of his family. And how right. he can't think bigger about the larger picture because they're hungry. Absolutely. I mean, talking about being in the building trades um, and things like working on, on the pipeline, you know, or, or going up to Canada to, to actually work on a facility that's dredging up the tar sands that they're putting in the pipelines. I mean, there are some, some people that, that I personally know that feel horrible about working on a project like that. But that's the only kind of job that they can see themselves doing. And that's why it's, you know, we need good jobs, not good jobs that are going to pay the bills, but that are also going to be good for um, good for our planet. You know, I just I just was on the phone with um, John Bauman and who's driving in California. And he's like, oh, my gosh, there's you know, I have to take a detour. It's you know, he's driving by the fires. Just, you know, it's it's a lot about survival right now. And that's what people are doing. And once you get into that hamster wheel where you, you can't get off, because if you do, then you're, you're going to get thrown out of, of where you live. You're not going to be able to pay your mortgage or rent or buy food. So you have to keep going to these, you know, however many jobs you need to get by. It's a shame, but you know, then again, I see light at the end of the tunnel with uh, things like fight for 15 and, and, um, you know, talking about providing health care for everybody. Yeah, I mean, speaking of the fight for 15, you know, of course, the fight to raise the minimum wage and things like health care. I assume when you were going out and running for Congress, you met a lot of people who would benefit from those policies, but weren't sure if they were supported it. And where sort of is that gap between, you know, not knowing if you should fight for something that would actually help you? Well, that's, I mean, the thing is, is that we have corporations now, they're spending millions of dollars just to get out of paying workers thousands of dollars. It's about power. They're not, you know, the corporations, they're not getting filthy rich by sharing with other people. And, and you know, whether they're, they're hoarding money offshore to get out of paying taxes, which actually could help contribute to put people to work in the United States, rebuilding our infrastructure, um, it's, it's rough. And so they're using, they, they're bombarded with this messaging 
that unions are bad for you. They want they want control over what you do when, you know, nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, unions are quite literally democracy in the workplace. Yeah, I don't know. Have you come across this documentary, American Factory, that uh, is kind of yes. getting ready for a big awards push later this year? I believe it's on Netflix. It's a documentary about an auto plant in Ohio that was shut down after the economy blew up. And it gets yes. purchased recently by a Chinese company who wants to make auto glass. And so they bring in some of the old American workers and also some Chinese workers. But a huge part of this documentary is about these workers slowly realizing they all need to unionize. And I didn't know that there were things that happened in in the world where the company hires professional anti-union kind of propagandists to go into the factory and try to scare people about what will happen if you vote for a union. Right. Yeah. I mean, they're very well paid, the the union-busted companies that do that. They specialize in it. And they have all kinds of fancy titles that makes it sound like they're there to help your workforce, you know? So when you're introduced to somebody from one of these um, places, they, you know, they have the captive audiences and they'll take them and talk about all the horrible things that unions are going to do to the workers. Uh, I mean, and and none of which are, are true. You have such an interesting career path that's brought you to this moment. And I imagine you, I was thinking about you, in your house, not on the big nights where you're making speeches like, I'm going to run for Congress, but on the quieter nights before that when you're making up your mind to do a thing that's going to wind up, you know, taking over your life. Like, I was wondering, I mean, did you feel at all sort of like Tom Jode at the end of Grapes of Wrath? Like, (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to run into the darkness. There's something I need to do. And I don't, I I guess I'm just going to jump right ahead. Wow. That Yes. Um, You know, it was like just the whole journey where, he needs he needs to do something for his family. He knows that where they're you know they can't stay where they're at, and he's not sure of what their destination is. But it's it's all about the journey, getting there, and and pushing yourself and doing something for a cause that's bigger than one's self. And I mean, I had no idea where we were going with our race. I just knew I was. People were asking me. They're like, "Look, um, we think." that you would be the perfect person to take on the Speaker of the House. Just, I mean, I had been chasing him around whenever he did show up in the in the district, um, just trying to, you know, get a word in. Was, he was going after Social Security and Medicare, Medicaid. Nobody was doing more to destroy it than, than Paul Ryan was. Um, and I didn't, you know, again, I didn't know what was going to happen when we launched our campaign. And then... Um, so we, you know, made a video and then released it and everything just, it was like getting launched out of, out of a cannon um, and, and never coming back down. And, and when you like, ran against Paul Ryan, he called you something that I think we hear in the film a lot. He calls you an agitator. Yes. Yes. And I, I mean, I, I took that as a, as a form of praise. It was a compliment because that's what I was trying to do. I mean, what do you feel like is the role that art and that film and that stories like The Grapes of Wrath can play in hearts and minds? Well, it's just the fact that that's, you know, with the the company taking away everything that you own, um, unless you 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 organize, you get together. Um, because I, I remember when uh, the part where they drive into the camp and there are all the people that are picketing and the sheriffs are, you know, ushering them through. 
And again, you know, they had their, their union buster, the guy that was driving when they were getting gas. And he said, are you looking for work? And, you know, told him his name and said, ask for me, tell him I sent you. So they, the sheriffs ushered him through the, the um, people that were picketing. And he didn't know, he had no knowledge of what was going on initially, but then he figured it out. And it's like, why are people upset? And then once you hear the story to find out that he's going to be, you know, they're taking advantage of him, just like they, they t- tried taking advantage of these other workers. And he's so much worse off than they were that he's willing to do anything for a job. And so it's, it's getting the people that are, it's getting the story out about why people are taking some kind of action against the employer, getting the message out in a positive manner. And that's, I mean, it's, it's just simple storytelling. Do you have a favorite moment in the film? Um, there are some parts that really, um, you know, touch me more than others. Uh, like when, when the, um, the grandmother dies and, you know, it's like, you know, the mom, she's, she's like, yeah, we, she died before, but they're still willing to push through just so they can bury her in California. You know, it's like, they have to get, they have to get to a destination. They have to do something that they see as achieving a goal before they'll bury her. And I think, the, you know, that, that she actually got buried in California. That was, that was a pretty special part of that movie. And, and I just can only imagine you know, that family, what they're going through um, in order to, to get to that, to make that decision. I love it. Well, Randy, thank you so much for taking a couple of minutes to talk to us today. It's been really lovely. Oh, it's been my pleasure. I just, when I, when I heard you wanted to talk about the movie, I was like, yes, because that's, you know, that's right up there. My top three movies of all time. Wait, what are the other two? Uh, True Romance. <laughs> this one. And it's just one of those movies that it's like everybody is in it. And, uh, you know, the parts that they play are, are pretty funny, especially the Brad Pitt stoner <laughs> guy. I, I like Star Wars movies, too. So it's but I don't have like one favorite Star Wars. movie. What about the worst one? The worst Star Wars uh, movie? I don't like the um, like the newer ones, like prequels. Those I'm not so hip on. <laughs> I appreciate you doing what you do. So thank you for that. Well, thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Well, go kick some ass out there. All right. Will do. Will do. <laughs> it was really great talking with you. Really great talking with you, too. You know, Amy, this has been actually a really interesting conversation. And the whole time we've been having it, I'm like, oh, I wonder if this film you know, should be remade? Is this a story that it clearly has parallels to what's going on now? Is there a modern day retelling of it? Or do we want to just remake Grapes of Wrath? It seems like Steven Spielberg did want to remake it. It's in, it kind of uh, embroiled in a, or was embroiled in a big lawsuit at a certain point, which I thought was really interesting. They wanted Daniel Day-Lewis to be the Tom Joad character, which of course is, you know, you talk about the Lincoln, uh, you know, you have Henry Fonda playing uh, Lincoln and then doing Tom Joad. You'd have the same kind of similarities with That's better. Lincoln. Cast an American, darn it. <laughs> I know, but, uh, but I, I, you know, I wonder if this film resonates if you do it about the Dust Bowl migration or if you find a way to update it, I think if you found a way to update Grapes of Wrath and and 
and tell this story about what's going on now be very interesting. I, I think that that would be, you know, I probably sacrilegious to a certain degree to be like, well, it's a modern retelling. Uh, you know, it's not grittier, but it, but I do think that there there is some benefit to maybe figuring out a way to tell the story again. I like that. And, uh, you know, I wonder if we'd want to hear it. I wonder, I don't I wonder if we'd just be like, we know, we know, which, uh, you know, sort of that cynicism of it. But I think if you keep politics out of it and you tell a story that does do everything that John Ford does, it, there is, um, there is, you know, obviously emotion, but there is, uh, you know, there's this, there's, there's an action element to it. There's, you know, there's highs and lows. Like you'd have to, you couldn't make the indie you know, just depressing version of this movie. I think you'd have to James find Franco's a- James Franco's been trying. He's been making indie, indie, indie Steinbecks. Yeah, I guess he has a, kind yeah. of tackled a couple of uh, Steinbecks. Uh, but I, I, there is something very interesting about this story. And for me, this is not a movie I was looking forward to watching. It just didn't seem like, oh, yeah, sure, Grips of Wrath. Like, uh, and I'm so happy that I did because I feel like the themes and the tone really- uh, or something special. And I, I feel like I should counter what I said about Oklahoma at the very beginning about like our modern day Oki migration by saying one of the most exciting things I've been seeing coming out of the world of indie film is that, you know, people who've been making independent films in Oklahoma are having an easier time staying there. Mm. That something has shifted here in America with our commerce of movies and how movies get distributed. There's a movie coming out this year called Vast of Night. And it's like done by a guy who was, he did sort of the, um, Kevin Durant bumper videos for the Oklahoma City Thunder. Okay. He did like promo stuff for like the, for the games and he saved up his money and he made this low budget period piece sci-fi thriller about a 1950s alien invasion. It's very cool. It's oh, one wow. of my favorite things I saw at TIFF. But I like the idea of letting people stay and make roots and I know I'm really kind of clumsily shooing that in yeah. right here but I, I don't know when else to get to say that what's exciting to me is there's cool film coming out of places like Oklahoma and you don't have to leave anymore. Well, I love that. I mean, and I hope the one thing that maybe gets brought back out of Oklahoma is uh, women smoking pipes because that's the one <laughs> thing in this film that I really found cool. I was like, I don't, you don't see enough women smoking pipes anymore. I'll start just for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, Amy, uh, this movie also is still affecting people. Um, you like to bring in some special clips, and I, I brought in one here. This is probably the the kind of best distillation of um, of the film, and this is in uh, Veggie Tales. One day, the grapes are out driving around in their car when suddenly they hit a bump. We must have hit a bump! Hey, what'd you do that for? I didn't do it, you did, you big possum head! I did not, you taco salad rabbit nose! It did too, casserole head for mental loaf, iguana boys! So, oh my god. It's a little, you know, so you can definitely watch the Veggie Tales, the mean, Grapes of Wrath, and they are grapes. They are dressed like the characters. Yes. And they're they, driving the jalopy and yeah, and they're grapes. You know, you know, the things that you as a father have brought into my life, Baby Shark <laughs> being one of them, yes, you know, the first yes. baby shark, have been hit or miss. This is this one's actually fascinating. <laughs> Thank you for that. You know, obviously this movie, when it comes out, like you said, even the bankers love this movie. And, I mean, are there people out there that when this film comes out, they don't like this film? Uh, Well, the yes, but with biases. There was okay. a review of this film written about in Motion Picture Daily, a review written by Martin Quigley, who is the co-author of The Hayes Code. And this is what he had to say about it. He called the film, quote, a stark and drab depiction of a group of indigents in human misery, misery 
told against a chaotic jumble of philosophic and sociological suggestion and argument. If the conditions which this picture tends to present as typical are proportionally true, then the revolution has been too long delayed. If, on the other hand, the things that the picture depicts are extraordinary, isolated, and non-typical conditions, then no small libel against the good name of the Republic has been committed. Interesting. So he's basically saying, if this movie is true, well, then why aren't we already in a revolution? And since we're not in a revolution, maybe it's not true. Uh, and then he's saying, if this movie is exaggerating, then this movie is an insult to all of America. And, and a lot of people took issue with this right away, including the film critic of the New York Times, who did a counter argument. He said, you know, Mr. Quigley still believes, and this is most discouraging in an industry advisor, that the motion picture must hide its head like an ostrich to be monarch of all it surveys. So this idea of you don't even want us, are you saying like we should not know anything about the world to even have a way to even talk about the world? Yeah. Like there's a giant hole at the center of your argument. That's so interesting. I think there's always going to be people that are going to have, you know, these nice hot takes. I mean, hot takes yeah. are, are not new. Yeah, it's basically the stay in your lane that we get right. even now. Like, oh, Hollywood people, we don't need you telling us what's happening in the country. Um, Eleanor Roosevelt actually also wrote about it too. You know, she had this column called My Day. And when she went to see it, she said that she thought the film was really well done, but she had some doubts, you know, and her doubts were that she said, I wonder if it will convey to many people the reality of what they're seeing, because people laughed near us at some of the broad remarks in the dialogue, and I did not feel that the tragedy gripped the audience. They did not seem to really know what this story actually meant, which makes me wonder if she was at one of those banker screenings. Yeah. Like, oh, look at Paul. He's got food on his face. Right, right, right. He's so stubborn about leaving Oklahoma. He's just going to die for the cross the border. Well, it's that idea of like laughing with a mouthful of blood. Like you're, you're, you're just, you're not, you're laughing for the wrong reasons. And I think sometimes you bring people in by making them feel comfortable. And then when they start to feel, they hopefully can change their point of view, but it doesn't always work like that. doesn't always work like that. Now, do you want to know if there's a Simpson? Uh, yeah, I do. <laughs> and I can't imagine there isn't because I feel like this movie has a lot of iconic things, whether it's the jalopy, whether it's that speech, whether it's the union work. I, I feel like there's definitely one in here. Yeah, the one that I pulled is from an episode called The Twisted World of Marge Simpson, when Marge Simpson gets really interested in business. Here, she goes to a convention for food snacks. She decides to invest in a pretzel man's business. This is them making the deal. Congratulations, and welcome to the dynamic world of mobile pretzel retailing. When can I start? What's my territory? Your territory. Well, well, let me tell you, wherever a young mother is ignorant of what to feed her baby, you'll be there. Wherever nacho penetration is less than total, you'll be there. Wherever a Bavarian is not quite full, you will be there. Don't forget fat people. They can't stop eating. Hey, pretzels. <laughs> I love it. Um, so, Amy, I guess the question becomes now, does this movie belong on the AFI Top 100 list? Ooh. It's an interesting question, right? Because I don't know if I feel like absolutely, but I also don't feel like it should be off. It is a quintessential American film, right? This is a, a movie about America. I said it earlier, it feels like the American version of Spartacus. You know, it's it's talking about, you know, a very big issue. You know, here's a movie that also is showing, you know, a very big issue in America, but we are, we're on a list that, you know, kind of ignores a lot of other major issues that went on in America. I like slavery being one of them, you know, uh, and, you know, does this trump what else is on there or should be on there? I don't know. 
it's tough. I mean, I feel bad that I keep seeing this film as still in kind of the mental scheme of homework that we were talking about yeah. earlier. But when we were talking about To Kill a Mockingbird, I was really knocked out by how dynamic that filmmaking was on top of the fact that it was an important, iconic American mm-hmm. story. I like the filmmaking here. It's fine. But right. I don't see it as being as vital as much as – I mean, I, there's no secret that I'm a total firebrand. And I'm like, I want to be right. Tom Jode out there yelling. Yeah. Or, I love a Tom Jode. I love me a Tom Jode. I'm probably more of a lazy Henry Fonda. But I don't think it's fair of me to want this film on the list solely for its politics. And it's hard for me to make an argument about it cinematically. Well, yeah. I, I think cinematically this movie is not blowing me away. But I think the deft nature that it is able to employ very lofty concepts, not be overtly political, um, and you know, still work – to this day, in 2019, this movie came out in 1940, you know, is impressive. And I, I look at that a lot. Like, is this film still relevant? Do we see the, you know, fingerprints of this on modern cinema? I I agree with both of those things. We do. And it is. Um, so for that reason, I say it does belong on the list. I, I think it's probably up a lot higher than it needs to be. But in the grand scheme of things that we talked about, I... I see this being important, especially for a film called the American Film Institute. Like this is, this is a you know one of those films that does a little bit of American history in there as well. Um, and you know, if anything, that last monologue is is pretty iconic. Um, the Ma one about we are the people. Yeah, which um, we should listen to and also know that apparently Zanuck directed that scene. That Zanuck really? was like, we need a happier ending. Ford was like, sure, if you want, go ahead. And Zanuck's like, okay, I'll make it. And he did this scene. I ain't never gonna see it no more. Well, Pa, a woman can change better than a man. A man lives sort of, well, in jerks. Baby's born or somebody dies and that's a jerk. He gets a farm or loses it and that's a jerk. With a woman, it's all in one flow like a stream. The ladies and waterfalls, but the river, it goes right on. A woman looks at it that way. Well, maybe. Maybe we sure taking a beating. I know. <laughs> That's what makes us tough. Rich fellas come up and they die, and their kids ain't no good, and they die out. But we keep a coming. We're the people that live. They can't wipe us out. They can't lick us. We'll go on forever, Pa, because we're the people. It's interesting because it's a double ending, right? It's so, like, she's basically doing another version of what Tom Joad does. But it works for me. I like it. I also like that it's written from this perspective of a woman's point of view. We've, We've spent a lot of time really seeing a man's journey throughout this film. And and I I really like how that film ends like that. And I love that Zanuck went in there to, I think, assure that this movie was palatable. Um, you know, he also had a really keen interest in sound design. Like, he insisted on cricket chirps during the scene with Casey down at the river, and he wanted the accordion being present in the score as a great American instrument. Um, it's interesting. I thought an accordion more of an Italian instrument, but... But, you know, he was definitely a hands-on producer. And uh, we talked about this last week with The Godfather and and Coppola and, and Marvel films. Like, this idea of, like, the producer being a little bit more of a controlling 
influence on film. And I think it was a, I think it was a smart move to, to give you a double beat there. I agree. I agree. I agree. As much as I think, you're right. Is it worth it that audiences leave The Grapes of Wrath being like, we got this? Right. Even though we kind of don't got this? Right. But it'd be like, we got this if it makes them see the film in the first place? Yeah. I think it is. I think it belongs on the list. I think it, I mean, we, there's a, there's been other films that we've kicked off that I've had no compunction about. No, but you're this, merciless. I'm merciless. You're like, get off my land. I'll give you two and a half cents. <laughs> <laughs> but I do feel like this is a movie that um, is saying something different. It doesn't feel like, we haven't seen a movie like this yet. It, it doesn't feel like, oh, well, we have X, Y, and Z. Yeah. This is not better than X, Y, and Z. I, I don't think we have X, Y, no, and Z. No, you're right. I would like to see more movies doing this. I think that the, that would be the thing that I'd be very interested in. I think there are movies out there that should be on this list that uh, I'd like to see, you know, rival it. All right. So next week, our film is the venerable classic Forrest Gump. And this is probably not a spoiler to say that neither Paul or I like this film very much. And so we were thinking we should do something a little bit different for next week week's episode because we have our own point of view on this. However, this film is on the list. We want to give it a fair shot. So instead of having a guest next week, we want you, the listeners who like Forrest Gump, to be the guest. So our call-in, you can even go a little longer than our usual call-ins. I want you to call in and tell us your defense for Forrest Gump. Tell us why we're off base. It's fine. We can take it. I just want Forrest Gump to feel like it was treated fairly. So if this sounds like you, if this sounds like a call you are burning to make, Give us a call at 747-666-5824. That is 747-666-5824 with your defense of Forrest Gump. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.